Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Casey Chalk, uh, one of our recent contributors in the magazine. He is an editor-writer at the New Oxford Review and at The Federalist. And he has a new book that uh, will certainly interest our listeners. It's called The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. Uh, welcome, Casey. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Mark. Uh, you begin with the story. And, and the, the strength of this book really is the actual stories of real people in real situations and the fact that you were there. Uh, you, you, wait, wait, no, wait a minute, Casey. You did all the research for this in your basement online, right? <laughs> okay, okay. We'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. All right. Now, you begin with the story of, uh, tell me if I pronounce her first name correctly, Asiya Noreen Bibi. Who was she, and what happened to her? We're going back to 2009. What happened to her? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, very very close to the correct pronunciation. I was actually corrected on it not too long ago myself. Uh, Azia Bibi, poor Catholic uh, farm worker uh, in a rural part of Pakistan, who um, was uh, you know minding her own business in this small community, but there were some minor conflicts uh, with Muslims that also lived there. And uh, there was a particular incident where she drank from the same uh, cup as some Muslims who took great offense at this and uh, basically accused her of having committed blasphemy. Pakistan has uh, some pretty draconian blasphemy laws on the books. Let, let, me, let me interrupt for you for, for – yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me interrupt you just for a moment in your, in your story. Pardon me, Casey, but what is a blasphemy law? Sure. So the um, – Pakistan and a number of other Muslim countries um, around the world have these laws in place where uh, if someone, I mean, it, 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 oftentimes it's a Christian, doesn't necessarily have to be a Christian. Sometimes Muslim minorities like, um, like Shia are also accused of this, of having done something to uh, offend the Quran, um, Allah, um, any, any other part of the Muslim tradition, they can be accused of, uh, of having committed blasphemy. And the law, the, the punishments uh, for having for having done this can be anything from uh, prison time to even death. And in the case of Pakistan, uh, you can actually be executed for committing blasphemy. Okay. What happened then in this particular case? Yeah, so uh, Bibi was uh, put on trial and ultimately convicted of having uh, committed blasphemy because of that, um, that uh, personal conflict. And uh, she was on death row for a number of years. In her case, it, the, uh, it did attract quite a bit of international attention, including from uh, Pope – at the time, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, who mentioned her uh, during one of, one of his uh, audiences in Rome. So there was quite a bit of international condemnation. 
um, including from a number of different heads of state. And eventually there was enough pressure put upon the Pakistani government and a, a prime minister in place, Imran Khan, who is a little bit more uh, sensitive to uh, international demands. And they were able to get her um, repatriated to Canada several years ago. But the um, the problem there is it just goes to demonstrate how much is needed in order to bring some relief to these persecuted, marginalized uh, Christian communities in places like Pakistan. You know, not every person who gets accused of blasphemy um, has the Pope and various uh, you know presidents around the world advocating on uh, on their behalf. Right, right. Let me quick side question: You were in Kabul in 2009, correct? Yeah, that's right. When you were there, apart from your interactions with uh, these these cases that, uh, including Ms. Bibi, that we'll, we'll touch upon. Did you see any signs of persecution or, or restriction or threat of some kind just in, in daily life, in, in the ordinary round of going to work, going out, shopping, and so on? Well, in Afghanistan, my movements were pretty restricted on um, military bases. So in the, the, the Christian community in Afghanistan is... Um, very, very small, practically non-existent. I mean, they can't, they're not really allowed to practice their faith openly. So my experiences there were, were very limited in regard to actually seeing uh, indigenous Christian populations. But in neighboring Pakistan, uh, there actually is a very uh, sizable, historic Christian population that can date back to about the 6th or 7th century AD. And uh, it was actually in Thailand, several years removed from that, where I went to work for several years where I was exposed to a number of these Pakistani uh, Christians who had fled persecution uh, in their native land. Um, and that's sort of you know, where I was able to connect some of my own professional experiences, knowing a language that's similar to theirs. Uh, Dari and Urdu share a lot of the same words. And I was familiar with their culture so that I was able to sort of develop relationships with a number of these Pakistani uh, Christian families in Thailand. Uh, for you, uh, when we moved to Bangkok in 2014. First of all, what 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 led you from Kabul to Bangkok? And and I'm 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 asking these questions about you because your immediate experience is an important part of the case that you're making in this book. How do you go? How do you get to yeah. Bangkok in 2014? Yeah, so it's actually kind of an extension to my work that I was doing in Afghanistan with uh, linguist uh, linguistics and translation. I went there to manage uh, a team of folks that were doing translation of media for all over Southeast Asia. Um, so, uh, yeah, for, you know, for various businesses and whatnot. Uh, so, um, I, but my connection with the Pakistani Christians was not related at all to my professional work. It was actually a community that I was exposed to through the local Catholic parish that we began attending when we arrived in 2014. I noticed immediately that there was this large South Asian community and having uh, served in Afghanistan and, and having a lot of familiarity with South Asian culture, I, I knew that this was something that was a bit unexpected. I was very interested to, to hear their stories and understand why they were there. And what I soon learned was that um, Pakistanis in very large numbers have fled uh, persecution in their home country to go to Thailand. The reason why go, they go to Thailand, you know, listeners may be wondering why the heck would they go there, is, uh, has to do with the tourist-based economy of Thailand. So this is pre-COVID, about 20% of Thailand's economy is based on tourism which means they, let, uh, they make it really easy for people to come into the country. Uh, so you, you can just basically fly into Bangkok's Sawarnabhum Airport and get a 30-day visa, and off you go, and no one's going to molest you or bother you. 
So Pakistanis know about this. Uh, uh, human traffickers know about this. And so it's become a very common way for people across the third world to, uh, to try and, and get into this country where there's a large uh, UN High Commissioner of Refugees office, which will process refugee applications. So people show up, they apply for refugee chat status, and then it sits, and it can sit for years. And uh, so that's hmm. how somewhere between five to 10,000 Pakistani Christians have ended up uh, in Bangkok and the surrounding suburbs. But not just Pakistanis. There's people from Palestine, Central Asia, um, all, all over the third world. Uh, people are, are uh, fleeing to places like Bangkok. Right. Being a young Christian father uh, in, in Bangkok and husband at, at this time, did you feel any pressure just personally, or were you pretty shielded from that given, given your, your job, your position? Well, uh, in some respects, we certainly uh, were interacting with the Thai police a lot more than I felt comfortable with. That was because once these Pakistani Christians overstay their visa, they become very easy ta- target for Thai immigration and police authorities, mainly because it becomes sort of it's a money racking money racket for them. They, uh, the Thais will periodically do these raids where they pick up uh, Pakistanis and other uh, people who overstay their visas and throw them into this really dirty, disgusting, you know, uh, a prison called the uh, Immigration International Detention or Immigration Detention Center. And uh, what they basically do is try to shake these people down for money, either some, you know, their life savings that they brought from them from whatever their uh, their native country is. Or you know, wealthy Western sponsors that have gotten to know them. So a lot of these folks are Christians. They get to know people at these international churches in Bangkok, and uh, so people like my wife and I kind of get wrapped up into their lives and do pay you know significant sums of money. At least when we were there, it was about fifteen hundred dollars per person to get them out of the IDC. Huh. Um, so yeah, so the the ties uh, have you know t- sort of take they take advantage of this system, and uh, and so, yeah, so we've had we had to do. Uh, you know, spent a lot of time interacting with the Thai authorities, and um, but they, yeah, they never molested. Uh, they don't. They typically don't molest Westerners. I think in part because of the, you know, the tourism economy bit. Uh, now, before we get to the story of another man, uh, Wilson William, uh, you spent some time in the book talking generally about what was happening in Pakistan in these years, sort of a, a political social backdrop during the years, let's say uh, 2005 to 2015, what were some of the larger forces going on here that brought situations where blasphemy laws could be invoked and really exploited? Yeah, so the, the persecution of Christians in Pakistan, it's, uh, it goes back a long time, but things certainly heated up uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but they, they really heightened quite a bit after 9-11. And there are a couple of historical factors that work into that. One is the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003. Afghanistan, because uh, thousands of these extremist Muslims, uh, you know, Taliban, Al Qaeda, other groups, fled into the mountainous, uh, remote western regions of Pakistan, um, and then from there made their way into large urban areas in Pakistan, like Karachi and Lahore particularly after the U.S. government started and U.S. military started to target these uh, Taliban groups in uh, Pakistan's um, Fatah in the northwest uh, frontier province. And the Pakistani military as well started to launch operations to get these uh, militants out of there. And that pushed even more of them into uh, Pakistan's large cities, which is where 
a lot of these um, Christian historic Christian communities live. So then you you basically have uh, very extreme forms of uh, of Islam that uh, you know tra- trace to the uh, Wahhabi school, Saudi Arabians, and, and Diobandi. The interacting with Christians and you know the uh, Pakistan means pure in uh, or, or uh, Pak means pure in Urdu, and uh, in these Muslims basically view Christians as a stain upon the purity of the Islamic State of Pakistan. So they mm-hmm. harass them, they intimidate them, uh, commit violent acts against them. So that's we, that's why we see a lot of the violence and uh, and other forms of intimidation increasing after 9/11. And the invasion of Iraq and military operations in Libya and Syria also contribute because many of these Muslim extremists view. Uh, Christians in uh, in their lands as an extension of the West. So when they see Western nations, what they would call Christian nations, conducting military operations in Dar Islam, the the, the, the land of Islam, even if it's not, not not their own country, they view that as an attack on them, and they want to take out their frustration and anger at some on somebody. And when they see you know poor uh, Christian populations uh, in in neighborhoods nearby, they end up targeting them as well. So. That's that's why we see these massive violent attacks happening in Pakistan increasingly in the later part of the first decade of the 21st century and, and in the last 10 years. So and big attacks, too. We're talking like an Easter attack, I think, in 2016 in Lahore that killed about 75 Christians. Um, so, I mean, big, huge numbers. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Okay, now, uh, Wilson William and his family, what, what happened? Who were they and what happened to them? Yeah, Wilson William is one of uh, the, these Pakistani Christians that I met while I was in Thailand. He had fled there with his family of about 16 people. So they were middle-class um, Christians living in Karachi, a massive city. It's actually about twice the size of New York City in southern Pakistan. His brother was actually a medical doctor. Wilson and his wife were both nurses. So pretty well established, which that in and of itself, I think probably was one of the reasons why they were targeted is that a lot of these Muslim extremists viewed these Christians' uh, success and socioeconomic socioeconomic status uh, jealously. First, they went after Wilson's brother, the doctor. They uh, encountered him on the street. They had a a torn Quran. They shoved it in his hands and took pictures and video of it, and it falsely accused him of committing blasphemy. Um, and uh, his brother was basically had to be hustled out of the country very quickly, and he now lives in the Netherlands um, so that he was able to avoid being convicted of blasphemy. Then they started coming after Wilson and his wife. Uh, his wife, uh, working at a major hospital in Karachi, had a Muslim patient uh, who falsely accused her of uh, trying to convert him to Christianity and also giving him an injection while he was trying to uh, honor the Ramadan fast. Uh, so the, this man and some of his family chased them out of the hospital, shot at them as they got into a taxi. Uh, and then from there, uh, Wilson and his wife and extended family went into hiding in Pakistan uh, for, 
I think almost a year until eventually they were able to get enough money and get the necessary passports to travel to Thailand. And this, those stories also attracted quite a bit of media attention uh, within Pakistan, included in uh, my book, The Persecuted, are news clippings from uh, in Urdu from uh, some of the regarding some of the stories of uh, the harassment and uh, attacks on his family. How did you come to get involved? You, you mentioned you met him, but there must have been some some deeper relation established, right? Yes. So Wilson, I met the very first Sunday that my wife and I went to church in uh, in Bangkok. He was handing out um, church bulletins, and I went up to him after uh, after mass and introduced myself. We started talking, and I wanted to understand how the heck he had ended up there. And over the course of many months, we developed a, a good relationship, and I came to view him and his family, I, I came to trust them quite a bit. There was very much a personal component to it. My wife has um, celiac disease, so um, it means that she can't receive uh, the host, and they don't have a low-gluten host in, uh, in Thailand, so she had to receive from the chalice, which many Thais, because that's not a thing in Thailand, they viewed very suspiciously as something, some sort of like uh, extra perk that was given to a, a white, you know, white American. Um, and uh, w- Wilson's family, his uh, two of his nephews were altar boys and kind of helped to... Um, uh, you know, assuage concerns of the Thai priests so that uh, my wife could receive the Eucharist. So we just, we developed this very personal, friendly relationship with them, which uh, was a great blessing to us. And uh, I think um, one person, uh, you know, after, a long time after we had developed a friendship with them observed that, you know, perhaps it was because in a way we were both outsiders. They were outsiders, um, you know, in a, in a country, you know, more than a thousand miles away from their home. And, uh, and so were we. And so I think we bonded in some respects over that. Hmm. How helpful over the years have you found that uh, the refugee organizations have been in in your experience? Well, the the UN uh, High uh, Commissioner uh, for Refugees, UNHCR, is is the main one in Bangkok. They, in one sense, I have sympathy for them. They are flooded with applications from people, uh, asylum seekers who are seeking refugee status. Um, They're not they're not positioned financially or with personnel to to manage the the massive number of people that are seeking refugee status. But that said, um, I I observed some concerning trends while I was there talking to a lot of Pakistani families like Wilson's and others, um, where, for example, uh, you, the UN relied upon um, Muslim interpreters, even though a lot of these Pakistanis, they speak English. Um, not uh, not necessarily as their first language, but very well. I mean, Pakistan's former British colony. A lot of the media in Pakistan is English. Um, they, they learn English in schools, so they don't really need them. But uh, the UN demands that these uh, meetings where the Pakistani Christians come in and they explain their story. And um, there's a, 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 an official UN official uh, taking notes. But the, the interpreter has to be uh, someone who can the, – the conversation has to be had through a, a, a Urdu interpreter. Um, and that that person was always a Muslim, and typically um, the Christians that I talked to would say that the sto- the information that was then communicated to the UN official was not accurate. And when the Christians would try to interrupt and say, "No, you're not representing my story properly," the UN official would just back off and say, "Look, you know, we're just going to go with what the interpreter says." So there was some problems there. I mean, sometimes it was even as bad as uh, after the interview was over, the Urdu interpreter, a Muslim, would tell the Christian families. Look, you really just need to convert to Islam and go back to Pakistan. That's the easy way to solve this problem. <laughs> that, that would solve the problem, sure. 
<laughs> just, just, just go with the flow, man. Uh, right. right. Okay. What, well, what about uh, U.S. policy? Uh, the U.S. government policy uh, regarding refugees, perhaps relative to their religious status, were did any issues like that come up in your experience? Well, things have certainly shifted quite a bit since I first began writing about Pakistani uh, Christians. So we used to take in you know, many thousands of um, asylum seekers or refugees uh, from Christian nations. I want to say, I forget the year, maybe 2015 or 16, something like as many as 18,000 in a single year. So that, that's actually a credit, quite a credit to the United States. I didn't realize this until I got really involved in learning these stories and understanding how this international refugee process works. But it's only a handful of countries in the world that take in UN-designated refugees. Most countries don't do anything. Um, so props to us for, for at least contributing to helping solve the problem. But things have shifted quite a bit. I think some of that has to do with immigration debates, which are very thorny, and also COVID has certainly uh, decreased the number of people that the United States and other Western countries are willing to take in. Um, apart from that, I would mention as well that some of the original articles that I wrote about this crisis for various publications were included in a, um, a briefing that was given to a congressional uh, subcommittee in 2018, um, which uh, was a tremendous blessing to be able to have their stories um, you know, presented in, in a national forum like that. One of the people on that subcommittee, Ilhan Omar, uh, a Muslim representative from, I believe, Michigan. And uh, one of the things that I was surprised to hear when, uh, when she commented was basically that you know, Christians are not the ones who are being persecuted around the world. It's actually Muslims who are suffering much more um, at the hands of, you know, various uh, oppressive regimes, and including the United States. She mentioned the FBI going after Muslims in the United States. And I think it's the, that kind of mentality, which is very common amongst the, um, the elite class in the United States and certainly within, within Washington, that has served as an impediment for helping a lot of these marginalized Christian communities, not just in Pakistan, but across the world. Just quickly, uh, uh, Omar is, is Minnesota. Minnesota, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, okay next, uh, you, you mentioned uh, things like the, the, the detention center's uh, conditions there. Uh, what was the case of Michael D'Souza and his family? Who were they? What happened to them? Michael D'Souza, also from Karachi, not as uh, wealthy as Wilson's family, he did a number of different jobs in Karachi, uh, like served as a courier for American Express. He uh, did some various administrative stuff at an Anglican school in the city. He's very outspoken about his Catholic faith. I realized that very quickly when I met him in Bangkok. And I think that probably is part of the reason why he attracted the attention of uh, militant Muslims in Karachi. They started to hound him. They first showed up at his father's funeral. And under the auspices of, you know, coming to pay their condolences. But quickly, Michael realized that they were there actually to try to convert him and his family. And when he refused, uh, they became very belligerent. They soon threatened to uh, basically abduct his wife and young daughter and have them married off to Muslim men, which, by the way, is a very common practice in Pakistan. About a thousand women in Pakistan every year are abducted and married off to Muslim men. Not all of them are Christian. There are some who are Hindu and Sikh, but it's almost entirely Christian that this happens to. So uh, the, from there, the, the militants started to harass Michael and his, and his family on the way to church. They beat him up on a number of occasions. This went on for years. 
Um, his sister-in-law actually was abducted and forcibly married off to a Muslim man when Michael went to file a report with the local police station regarding that. When the police heard that there were militants involved, these, uh, these Pashtun Taliban uh, members, the police just ripped up the report because they were <laughs> almost as scared of the militants as Michael was. So after several years of this, Michael was very much concerned that he and his family uh, were going to be killed. Um, if not have other terrible things happen to them. They also fled to Bangkok. And uh, they, uh, like Wilson, had some American or Western benefactors willing to help them out. But uh, Michael was and, and his family were eventually detained by the Thais uh, on multiple occasions. The second time in 2016 and 17 was for almost a year, I think about 10 months, during which time my wife and I went to visit uh, him and his family almost every week bringing them supplies. Like I mentioned, the IDC is a very uh, unsanitary place. Um, there's a lot of corruption. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's very unhealthy. People have, been, have, have died in there. So we, you know, we would bring the kind of you know, food and clothing and other necessities to them, uh, pray with them. Um, and uh, yeah, this went on until uh, right before we left Thailand in 2017. It, the conditions had gotten so bad, and one Thai um, detention center official had taken a particular interest in Michael's teenage daughter, that uh, they were they were concerned and uh, decided that it was actually a better plan to just go back to Karachi than stay in Bangkok. So we were able to quickly get the money together from a number of family and friends and uh, put them on a plane back to Karachi. And we even paid for a tuk-tuk, which is like a motorized rickshaw, so that uh, he could have a form of income in Karachi. So he did that for, uh, for some time. In 2018, when we had returned to the United States, um, I, we got a call, it was actually, actually on St. Patrick's Day 2018, that uh, Michael had been identified by, this, by the same uh, Pakistani uh, Taliban extremists that had beat him up years before. So, so they he, saw him on the it, street. Yeah, he'd just been recognized on the street, right? Yep, yeah. yep. While doing and, his job. Uh, and they, they hailed him like they wanted a, a ride up with, like, a, you know, like from his taxi. And uh, he didn't realize who they were, but they noticed, they, they knew who he was. They pulled him out of the taxi beat him almost to death, and then burned his rickshaw. Um, okay. So he was in the hospital for a while. And, uh, and yeah, we, I mean, we, we were concerned. We thought he was going to die. He has survived, but since then, him and his family have basically lived under self-imposed house arrest in the suburb of Karachi. So they rely entirely on um, the, the charity of uh, a, a, number, a few number of American families that we know who can, you know, continue to send them money. Given the, the power of the Taliban that you mentioned earlier, even you know a few years ago, uh, did the Taliban's triumph almost immediately after the U.S. departure a few months back, did that surprise you? Uh, no, not particularly. <laughs> Having served in Afghanistan and, and seeing how corrupt and ineffective the Afghan National Army and Af Afghan National Police were, I knew that it was a bit of a paper tiger, even though, you know, U.S. military officials were claiming that they were it was a robust force. Uh, you know, we, we knew, I think a lot of people knew and many books have been written about this already, about the, the inherent weaknesses, weaknesses and, and um, inefficiencies in the military and the government. So I think once once the, the U.S. was announcing that they were going to pull out and especially, um, you know, pull out their their air power. I think it was only a matter of time before the Taliban was going to reassert uh, control over the country. Hmm. Are, do you think American media generally are reluctant to report on anti-Christian persecution? 
I don't know about reluctant. Perhaps maybe just they're not aware of it in many in many cases. I think also just the nature of, of what's happened to journalism over the last generation has very much hurt um, the yeah the Christians in the third world. I mean, most journalists are trained at you know these elite uh, institutions that are very secular. Uh, so most of the journalists we're getting, I, I want to say you might know better than me, Mark, but I want to say more than 90% of the journalists now in the United States vote Democrat, and many of them are not religious. So there, there's these are stories that are just not even on their radar, right? They're much they're much more inclined to report on uh, institutional racism or perhaps the plight of uh, sexual minority communities in the third world rather than you know religious ones like Christians. Yeah. You. You suggest that this really isn't going to get better because when Muslims, Muslims can't be pluralistic in their own communities and religious pluralism because they see the cross itself as, as something shameful, as something insulting to their own religion, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly cert there's a lot of theological um, obstacles that Muslims have to overcome uh, within their own tradition um, and within the, within their own scriptures. I think in order to be willing to accept uh, you know religious freedom for Christian populations in their communities, but I think you just all you have to do is look at a map of the world and all the places, uh, all the countries where uh, it's Muslim majority, if not. Uh, you know, Islam is explicitly written into the law, and the nation uh, identifies itself, defines itself as Muslim. Look at where religious freedom is uh, anywhere on par with the West. I mean, it's it's you you it's it's barely it's it's barely anywhere at all. Most of these countries, uh, it's impossible for Christians to evangelize. Oftentimes, it's difficult for them uh, to build new churches or even uh, restore the ones that they have and do renovations. Um, and even in places like, you know, Indonesia sometimes is offered up as, a, you know, a more secular, a democratic Muslim nation. But even there, Christ, uh, persecution of Christians ha is happening all the time. The most uh, prominent example in recent years being uh, the former mayor of Jakarta, the capital, who is a, a ethnic Chinese Christian and also falsely accused of blasphemy. And he was also convicted and sentenced to two years in prison. Um, for uh, for a charge that was just obviously trumpeted up, it was a doctored video. I mean, well known. Every, this was well known even in Indonesia itself, and yet he was convicted. So, yeah, I don't have a lot of hope for uh, a significant shift in the treatment of Christians within Muslim countries. Yeah. The book is "The Persecuted: True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands." Casey Chalk, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.